Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right. That was exciting. Uh, I've got my microphone. got my headphones. Double martini. Snacks. Script. Audacity. All right. I think we're ready to go. Hello. My name is Tom Daly, host of American Biography. In my podcast, we're giving new meaning to the phrase, in the course of human events, by telling the American story through Americans' stories. To do this, we're not focused on the biggest names like Washington, Lincoln, or Roosevelt, who so often preoccupy people's attention and suck all the air out of the room. Instead, we focus on judges, congressmen, cabinet members, civic leaders, or diplomats whose names are perhaps not as familiar or whose importance isn't as fully appreciated as they should be, but who have definitively left their mark on American history. Here, we believe that biography is the perfect vehicle to tell the overarching story of the United States because each subject is sort of a case study, allowing us a window into both the subject and the society which shaped them, even as it was, in turn, shaped by them. By casting our gaze down from the titans of the American pantheon and focusing on people who, but for some twists and turns in the road, might be any one of us, our goal is to provide listeners with a more intimate and comprehensive understanding of the American past. So please join me on this journey through America's biography by subscribing to American Biography, available in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Hello, everybody. As is traditional, this month we have patrons and donors who are worthy of honor and praise. First up, we have patron JF, who shall be known henceforward as Sergeant JF, the meat shield. We also have two donors this month. We have Dan, who has asked to be known henceforward as Dan the Odiferous Friar. And finally, we have Jason, who shall be known from this time until the moon falls from the sky as Cardinal Jason, the store brand Dunscotus. Thank you to all of our patrons and donors. You are the ones that keep the lights on for this operation, and your hard-earned money is very appreciated. For the rest of you, you may want to head over to the website and check out the donation page if you want to join their Surrey ranks, or you can check out the store page where you can buy a variety of exciting t-shirts. If more of you buy t-shirts, I may eventually unlock some of the other things that I can get through Amazon. If all of you hate the fact that there's just t-shirts, please let me know and I'll see if I can get a different vendor.
Before we get to today's episode, I have had some feedback from the episode I did with Thomas Daly about modern Catholicism. Honestly, I sort of expected a torrent of hate mail, and instead I got several very nice pieces of constructive criticism. You guys are really the best listeners a guy and his cat could ask for. Anyway, I just think I should quickly respond to these comments, both because I said I would in that episode, and because hopefully you'll find them useful. First up, I got a comment from Richard, who said the following. The last bit of that episode reminded me, as I grew up Catholic, that my parish priest, 70s-80s UK, had been in the Royal Marines, and had parachuted into battle, probably Aden, Egypt, and or Cyprus in the 1950s. He said he could do a mass in nine minutes, from the jump light going on in the plane to the first men jumping out. His key vestment for the mass, a silk stole, was rolled up and stored inside his hollow crucifix, and the chalice and plate for the communion folded up like something from Ikea. That story is awesome. Thank you, Richard. Now, David wrote to suggest that my use of a lapsed Catholic might have been methodologically flawed and resulted in somewhat of a shallow look at modern Catholicism. He is right, of course, but then the goal of the episode wasn't to give anyone a deep appreciation for the wonderful and complex world of the modern Catholic faith. The point was to give people who, like me, are not from any kind of Christian background a basic grounding in what the basic furniture of Catholicism is, like... What is the Eucharist? What is confession? Not everyone knows this stuff. It's going to be important, and, you know, I didn't happen to have a Catholic scholar on hand when it was time to do the recording. My friend and colleague Tom was kind enough to do the interview, though he warned me that it was methodologically unsound to have him do the interview. So, don't blame Tom, blame me. I do think it worked out, given the very limited purposes that I had in mind. I hope you all understand what I was going for. Finally, we have one last piece of feedback from my co-religionists, Benjamin and Ira. These two gentlemen very rightly pointed out that, contrary to what I said, Jewish tradition encourages people to pray five times a day, with some form of formal service happening at least once per day in every congregation. The dumb thing about this is that of course I knew this in my brain somewhere, but the wrong thing just came out of my mouth hole. Even the reform congregations I grew up in have a minion at least once per day, at which ten Jews must participate for the service to be valid. Iris' congregation seems to have three formal services a day, while Binyamin shared information about a app or a website that lets people in the New York area find pickup minions wherever they are when it's time to pray over the course of a day. It's called GoDavin if you're interested, and that's, that's a pretty cool service. Anyway, this is all very different from what I said, which is that Jews tend to only go to services on Shabbat. If you all excuse me saying so, mea culpa, I slap my forehead in astonishment at my oversight. Nonetheless, it is true that this liturgical tradition is notably different from the Catholic tradition described by Tom of pretty much constant masses over the course of the week, all alike in honor. The different prayer sessions over the course of the Jewish day have different names and different liturgies associated with them, and the services on Shabbat are different from the services that take place on any other day of the week. And of course, the fact that most Jews, however you want to define that, probably only go to services on high holidays is, you know, probably something similar with most modern religions. Now, whether the average Jew actually follows the schedule is open to question, but certainly the services are offered and people are encouraged to participate in them. Just as, theoretically, Catholics are encouraged to go to as many masses as they can do. 
Anyway, all this is sort of based on what I know, based on my experience, the feedback I've gotten from Benjamin and Ira, and uh, what Tom has told me. If anyone out there has more to add about liturgical traditions, shoot me a line. Even if it's a Catholic liturgical tradition, I'd, I would love to get someone who is a Catholic scholar to give a little bit more interpretation and a little bit more depth than what Tom was able to provide at some point down the line. We're going to have a lot of time to slot in these episodes, and I think they've generated a useful conversation, and I think taught some people some things that they didn't know. I certainly learned something, so that was really the point. On to the show. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this is not their story. Late 5th century AD, the city of Hippo. In an orchard. Therefore God has shown the church and her enemies the Jews the grace of his compassion, since, as he says the apostle, their offense is the salvation of the Gentiles. Romans 11.11. And therefore he has not slain them, that is, he has not let the knowledge that they are Jews be lost in them, although they have been conquered by the Romans, lest they should forget the law of God, and their testimony should be of no avail in this matter of which we treat. But it was not enough that he should say, Slay them not, lest they should at last forget your law, unless he had also added, Disperse them, because if it had only been in their own land, with that testimony of the scriptures, and not everywhere, certainly the church, which is everywhere, could not have had them as witnesses amongst all nations to the prophecies which were sent before concerning Christ. Quote from The City of God, Book 18, Chapter 46, by St. Augustine of Hippo. Everyone's right, and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 61. On the outside looking in, on the inside looking out, part one. How do we deal with difference? This is one of the most fundamental questions humans confront when organizing societies, basically from the moment on the playground when we realize that the other kids might hold different views from us on things like the rules of baseball, whether or not that was a strike, and whether or not someone has a big stupid face. We don't all see things exactly the same way, and yet we have to find a way to cooperate and agree on some rules of the road, or else we basically all starve to death. Well, that metaphor escalated quickly. Over the last season of episodes, I've discussed an idealized version of the social structure in Europe. Along the way, I hope I've been very clear that there were probably very few places which resembled even the very complex picture I've presented. There were massive variations in geography, local history, and local culture all across Europe, such that no matter your class, the quote-unquote normal picture that I've presented probably applied to relatively few people. At the same time, I hope it's clear that the social structures I described are still relevant because they are, in a sense, center mass. They are closer to something like conditions that most people lived with than any other single picture or set of pictures I could have presented, and they help sketch out something like an idea of how things worked for quote-unquote normal people. Podcast footnote. I'm going to say the word normal a lot in this episode, so let's just assume there's quotes, okay? End podcast footnote. But as I just said, very few people are normal. In fact, when you start trying to define what you mean by normal with any kind of honesty, you often end up in the paradoxical situation of describing a person who makes up less than a majority of the population. You might just end up describing yourself. 
So who gets to define normal if there's no objective definition of normal? Why, the people with power, obviously. And why would everyone else let these people have the power to define normal in this way? Well, usually it's actually because a large enough portion of the population are able to share in the power and the definition of normal that is chosen so as to help keep things somewhat stable. Let me take a modern example. American mass culture tends to define normal as a straight, white, neurotypical male who is casually Christian and generally prosperous. According to the U.S. Census, white men make up around 30% of the population. Something like 9% of white people live below the poverty line, and not all of the prosperous white people are Christian. So you can see where I'm going. But this mass media perception bias stands because white women are able to identify in many ways with white men, poor people can identify at least aspirationally with the idea of having wealth, and many non-white people are Christians, etc., etc. I'm simplifying, but you get what I'm going for. Of course, rich white men also control the means of media production, as it were, and that is certainly a factor. But it's really not the only factor, probably even the biggest factor. So even though relatively few people are straight Christian white men, this remains the normative picture since it's an image that people can buy into, if you will, with portions of their identity. Podcast footnote. This discussion is not intended to necessarily say that there's anything wrong or bad about white Christian straight men. Some of my best friends are white Christian straight men. The main point I'm trying to make here is actually statistical. Anytime you try and define a point and call it normal, your statement is always wrong. It's always wrong in an absolute sense, at least according to the colloquial definitions of normal. You may be right in calling it normal if you use statistical qualifiers. One of these kinds of statements that I make in my day job might go something like this. Quote, I can say with 95% confidence that, normally, 80% of the physically healthy adult population is willing to walk no more than five minutes to catch a bus, within one standard deviation of five minutes. End quote. That's a lot of qualifiers, but it does represent a genuinely useful bit of data, if you understand what I'm saying. The second point I am making with this discussion, which is hopefully more explicit in the earlier discussion, is how society works to take the fairly narrow definitions of normality produced by individuals and groups and stretch them to bring together a huge amount of actual diversity. This is a key in any society, no matter its particular composition, because there needs to be some sort of shared expectations to prevent total chaos, and because any society is composed of a literally infinite amount of diversity pretty much composed of every individual member of that society. Those of you who are paying attention have probably noticed that I'm using some of the tools of intersectional feminism in this discussion. In fact, I basically lifted all of this straight from intersectional feminism. But modern ideas on the subject are, again, not really the point of today's discussion. For the record, I think intersectional feminism is an extremely powerful and useful set of intellectual tools which are mostly intended for academic uses, it's unfortunate that it's getting a bad rap in modern mass culture from people who do not understand what it represents, but that is a discussion for another time. Suffice it to say that if you're trying to understand a method of academic inquiry based on stuff from Tumblr, you're doing it wrong. End podcast footnote. Over the next few episodes, then, we will be delving into how medieval society dealt with people who were not normal, and what ramifications this had for people on the ground and the way we interpret the society of the Middle Ages as a whole. Before we begin, however, we need to really talk about methodology and how I'm a trash person. Listeners, bless me, for I am about to sin a whole bunch. The problem here is sources. Namely, that sources purporting to discuss medieval society either start up or end around the year 1200. 
In particular, I've noticed that the historians discussing economic and political history tend to be the ones that cover the early period ending at 1200. The historians covering social topics focus on the period starting at 1200. They all call their works medieval history of whatever. This is very annoying. I mean, it makes sense, given what we've talked about in terms of written primary documents, right? Economic and political historians can lean on monkish chronicles and supplement it with archaeology. It's hard to talk about everyday life in a period with very limited written records and where the secular literature is basically only about how many things a particular knight could stab with a given spear. All the same, you'd think that the historians would have come up with something after all these years of whining about how the 467 date for the start of the Middle Ages is meaningless. And while I've been hard-pressed to deal with this for many of the episodes over the last few months, the situation in these episodes is really just critical. So first off, listen, eggheads, I need you to all sort this out. Either pick a different periodization, or cover the whole Middle Ages in your books, or use better titles. It's so bad that I basically decided that I couldn't even do this topic. For basically the past two years, I'd decided against it, given the lack of sources. Surely it would be better to come back later. But I think I need to do this now. First, a few listeners have asked for me to cover this topic. Second, I think covering this is really important for clarifying how medieval society worked. One of the main contributions of modern scientific thinking has been the observation that studying phenomenology is just as important for understanding how things work as studying the base cases. Darwin would never have come up with a theory of natural selection if he'd spent all his time looking at just a bunch of normal finches. All those Galapagos finches that he ended up studying were clearly finches, but he was interested in why they were different. It is only by looking at differences and trying to fit the differences together that we can understand how some things work. And hopefully you'll agree with me by the end of these episodes that medieval society is one of these things, and that a lot, some of the differences we need to look at are social differences. Podcast footnote. When I decided to do this episode, it was for the reasons I just discussed. But given the timing of the release, there is really no way I can go on without discussing one important subject. The last few years have seen a major rise in hate crimes against minority groups in the United States and around the world, and the last month has been particularly bad for Jews in the United States, particularly in the Northeast. And I need to spell this out a little bit more specifically, it's been especially bad for members of the Orthodox community. As with Jews in general, there is a huge range of practices within the Orthodox community. But a number of members of this community have beliefs that require them to wear clothing or live a lifestyle that makes them relatively easy to pick out of crowd visually. So some might wear black hats or suits, they might wear tefillin, ladies in the community might dress in a notably conservative fashion, men tend to not shave their sideburns so there's curls. There's a whole range of different practices, but usually you can spot them in a crowd. Unfortunately, this visible expression of their deeply held personal beliefs has made them an easy target for the simmering bigotry in our society. As I've said before, I'm not a member of the Orthodox community. My family is Reform, which means that, well, it means a whole bunch of things, but amongst the things it means is that we don't wear special clothing and we don't observe a number of other practices that would make us stand out. This isn't why we do these things, but the result is that we happen to fit in visually. As a result, my community has mostly been okay so far. There's been a couple shootings, the one in Pittsburgh, but that doesn't really make us safe. We pass, but we're still Jews. Despite some profound differences, we're part of the same people as the Orthodox, and attacks on them are a threat to all of us. Unfortunately, I'm not sure we've really responded to this threat appropriately. 
Rather than come to the aid of our orthodox co-religionists by seeking to build bridges with them and find ways to help them feel safer, many Jews have taken this opportunity to go out tub-thumping about whatever political issue they are already passionate about, and those issues are often at cross-purposes. Whether you are pro- or anti-Israel, pro- or anti-Trump, those things have only a passing relationship with the fact that an important and vulnerable community is hurting and afraid and they need what help we can provide. Now, I'm just one dude in a basement with a cat, so I can't do much. But the timing of these episodes has ended up being fortuitous, important, unfortunate, in that it means that I have to say something about this. As it is, I think in these episodes we will learn a lot about the structure of medieval society and how it organized itself. We will also be seeing a case study in how processes of belief can be used to build and formalize hatred for groups who are different, and how that hatred can turn into violence. It'll also show how people, despite these processes of belief, can live together and not kill each other. Hopefully this discussion can help us all understand some of these processes just a little bit better, and we can do our part to help derail the processes going on right now. And of course, though Jews will feature prominently in these episodes, we will see that these processes are not unique to Jews. Uh, in fact, possibly the only thing unique about Jews in this context is our ability to survive it. I hope all of us can learn from these examples how important it is to reach out to people who seem different, and to learn to respect our shared humanity. I hope for all this, but then this is just a little hobby podcast. At least I have my cat and my fancy drink. End podcast footnote. So, I have reasons for trying to cover this, but just because I have reasons doesn't mean that I magically have sources. As a result, I'm going to be a bit anachronistic in my dates here. In these episodes, I have basically been focusing on the years 900 to 1100, though I have been slipping to 1200 as we've gotten closer to the end of this season. In this episode and the next one, a lot of the concrete examples I have are from later periods. I'm going to try and keep them between 1100 and 1300, but I'm probably going to fail. I hope I will be able to make all of this clear as I go in the discussion, but just a heads up, I'm basically going to be working backwards here just because I have limited options. Which brings us to my sources. My sources for today's episode are going to be the books Community of Violence by Dr. David Nirenberg and The Chosen Path by Rabbi Benjamin Sendler. In addition, I've consulted with Cambridge and Oxford Histories of the Middle Ages, the Evergreen Tome, Origins of the Medieval Economy, and some of the broader survey books I've used in previous episodes. As Rabbi Sendler is a listener and provided me with a free copy of his book, I would like to take a moment to thank him in particular for his kindness in listening to my show, for providing his book, and for his infallibly polite and insightful constructive criticism of my past shows. As always, if I've gotten anything right in these episodes, it's because of the wonderful scholarship I've had access to. If I've made any mistakes, it's due to my own lack of diligence. These two principal sources I'm consulting probably couldn't be more different, but they work well together. At a basic level, they share an earnest scholarship, and if I may be so bold, they're both pretty fun reads. I mean, you know, my kind of fun. The kind of fun that starts a history podcast as a hobby in a basement with a cat. Anyway. Rabbi Sendler's book is aimed at budding religious scholars and provides a summary of the Jewish people's history from the fall of the Second Temple to the Spanish Inquisition. There is a strong focus on religious writings and, if I can make the observation, a discernible orthodox viewpoint. Nothing wrong with that. While I tend to lean in a secular direction myself, the book has been a completely invaluable resource that provides insight in what the Jews of Europe were doing when no one was suing them or trying to stab them with something. This has been particularly useful in the early Middle Ages, where legal and literary records in mainstream medieval society are missing, 
But the religiously oriented correspondences among Jewish communities were scrupulously preserved and have recently been unearthed. In an era when most of Europe were illiterate, the leaders of the Jewish scholarly communities have left us some wonderfully mundane discussions. Lest that come off as an unkind comment, I need to hasten to add that mundane records are the bread, butter, garlic, Boston bib lettuce, shredded parmesan, and handmade dressing in the Caesar salad of life for any historian, amateur, or professional. Such mundane materials are the best possible sources, since they provide keen insight into the realities of daily life with a minimal amount of posturing for the sake of posterity. Having such correspondences collated into a single, conveniently short volume has been invaluable for these episodes. Again, Dr. Nirenberg's work is an avowedly secular one, and focuses on the Jewish, Muslim, and leper communities of southern France and Spain in the late Middle Ages before the arrival of the Black Death. Nirenberg taps his own vein of glorious mundanity in the form of the bounteous legal records of his time and place. He uses this data to compile a surprising picture of intercommunal relationships in this period, which he uses to attack the grim tautology of minority studies in the post-Holocaust era. Incidentally, the grim tautology of post-Holocaust scholarship is the topic which I would like to start today's episode with in earnest, so let's do that. As I have droned on about at length in the past, from about the turn of the 20th century up until around the end of the 1970s, the mainstream of thought in history, at least academic history, was the structuralist school. This school of thought was somewhat notorious for its focus on the long durée large narratives that affected society as a whole over time, rather than the things that impacted any given individual who, if you had records of him, he was probably a noble or a king. Though the goal of this was to talk about how history impacted the little guy, as opposed to nobles or kings, this approach also ends up being extremely normative and ignores things like how social forces might have impacted women, Muslims, lepers, etc. differently from straight white men. There is one exception to this tendency of the structuralist school to treat everybody as a mass of formless humanity. The structuralist school really became historical orthodoxy without competition in the post-World War II era, as the competing German schools of historical thought had been destroyed or discredited, and as the post-war French government sought to shore up its legitimacy by pumping resources into the comfortably center-left research of the Annals School. But as multicultural liberal democracy took its victory lap, there is one historical question that absolutely refused to be subsumed into the long durée. Why did the Holocaust happen? Now, I'm not going to answer that question today, uh, in this show, ever, at all. That's just that's way, way beyond the scope. But the result was several decades of very important work on Jewish historical studies, which simultaneously started to break down the monolithic affectation of structuralism while still decidedly utilizing all of its methodologies. In other words, Jewish studies was one of the first areas of historical inquiry to split from the focus on the common people as an undifferentiated mass of humanity. At the same time, the practitioners of this discipline were not rebels seeking a new way to do history. They were true believers in structuralism, and the narrative of the Jews in medieval Europe that they developed reflects that viewpoint. It goes something like this. During the late Roman Empire, persecutions of Jews by the Christian mobs was bad, but scattered. The Christians were still figuring out how to be a mainstream religion, and also how to deal with the other religions of the empire. Some figures, like St. Ambrose of Milan, produced violently anti-Semitic screeds that verged on genocidal, while the secular authorities wavered back and forth between trying to maintain order by protecting Jewish communities and trying to maintain order by doing the persecution themselves in an orderly and systematic fashion. 
At the same time, the intellectual and cultural links between Jewish communities made them increasingly important from a commercial standpoint in the context of a breakdown in the power and economic importance of the Roman government. Think of this in terms of what we discussed in terms of the European economy, with the Roman government doing increasingly small amounts of investment and economic activity. The fact that you had a people who could engage in long-distance trade and be sure of a friendly welcome, well, that was important. As the Roman government entered its death throes in the western half of the empire, St. Ambrose of Milan made the fateful decision to send one of his most brilliant disciples to North Africa to become a bishop. This disciple, known to history as St. Augustine of Hippo, would go on to become the most influential theologian in Western history. And, importantly for our story, Augustine broke with his master in terms of how he thought the church should manage its relationship with the Jews. Sure, the Jews were deicides who had killed Jesus, but they were also God's chosen people. Augustine articulated the doctrine of the witness people, and said that the destruction of the Second Temple and the resulting diaspora was God's punishment for the Jews' killing of Jesus, but there really wasn't a need to punish them further. In fact, the diaspora was all part of God's plan, because the Christians were in the process of converting all the pagans to Christianity, and they would need a neutral party to bear witness to the inevitable glory of God. Ultimately, the Jews would all convert to Christianity, but only right at the end, just before the second coming of Jesus. Or maybe right after. There was a debate. The debate continues, incidentally, but that's not part of our story. In any case, it was illogical to persecute the Jews from this viewpoint. Rather than active persecution of the kind advocated by Ambrose, Augustine argued that the Jews should be granted all the protections that citizens enjoyed under Roman law, with a few key exceptions. While Jews shouldn't be allowed to convert anyone, and the Christians should definitely always be on top from a social standpoint, Jews should otherwise be free from persecution. There should be no forced conversions and things like that. Augustine's ideas were given a major boost when they were energetically supported and disseminated by Pope Gregory the Great. And thus commenced what some historians have possibly facetiously called the Augustinian Golden Age, in which Jewish communities around Western Europe were able to thrive and grow with only sporadic conflict in the records. Over time, the Jewish communities of Europe grew wealthy and prominent, though they always did prefer to live in Muslim-controlled areas where the Koran's doctrine calling for the protection of the people of the book was seen as more tolerant than that of the Augustinian Golden Age. The greatest Jewish community of this time was Granada in Muslim-controlled Spain. Incidentally, the ability of Jews to engage in long-distance trade and money-lending made them a valuable economic asset for the budding monarchies of the region who gave them special protections while also subjecting them to extra taxation. Of course, the fact that they were engaged in money-lending and merchant activities made them very unpopular amongst the peasants of Europe. Starting in the 1100s, things started to swing back in the other direction. A new fanatical group of Muslims called the Almohads came out of North Africa and severely disrupted the Jewish communities in southern Spain, while a new, more personal kind of Christianity was developing in northern Europe that left common people feeling that they had a personal relationship with God without necessarily giving them the tools to have a full understanding of the complex Augustinian doctrines. When the First Crusade was called, an unintended consequence was an explosion of anti-Semitic riots against Jewish communities in the Rhine Valley. While initially a limited event, anti-Semitic riots became more and more common. Though they initially protected them, the monarchs of Europe eventually found it politically or financially expedient to join the persecution of the Jews. France expelled the Jews several times, as did England, and though small communities always filtered back, these major centers of Jewish life beforehand had been essentially eliminated. Eventually, the largest surviving Jewish communities were in the Christian parts of the Iberian Peninsula, where a unique multicultural society had grown up in the war-torn regions being reconquered by the Christian kings. 
There were also large, if scattered, communities in southern France, Italy, and Germany, where political anarchy prevented the long-term persecution of Jews in any given area. Then came the Black Death, which gave all of Europe PTSD and led the already increasing tempo of persecutions to go into overdrive as the bewildered Christians of Europe sought someone to blame for their misfortunes, and the humanitarian doctrines of Augustine were forgotten in a centuries-long wave of mass hysteria. The first large-scale persecutions took place in Iberia, and anti-Semitic riots became common even in Italy and Germany. Jewish communities fled to the frontier regions of Eastern Europe, where the Polish crown welcomed their commercial ties and financial skills. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth eventually became the largest state in Europe, and Jews settled thickly in the region from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Eventually, the Spanish Inquisition scattered the Jewish communities of Iberia all around the Mediterranean. The Jewish communities of Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean Basin became numerically large and prosperous despite occasional persecutions, and they survived until the disasters of the 19th and 20th centuries destroyed them, notably in the pogroms of Imperial Russia, the Holocaust, and eventually the anti-Semitism fomented by the foundation of the State of Israel. This is the overarching narrative of European Jewish history as put together by these structuralist historians. And honestly, despite my sarcastic tone, a lot of this holds up really well. Certainly the broad strokes are accurate, and it's very instructive how some of the heroes of the wider historical narratives becomes villains in this view. For example, I think most of us in the modern age would have sympathy with a religious movement that seeks to allow people to have a personal, emotionally satisfying experience of the divine. The complaint against such movements throughout history has often been that the common people are simply not capable of understanding the intricacies of doctrine, and half-understanding something can be more dangerous than not understanding something at all. I'm usually suspicious of the self-serving nature of such an elitist line of argument, but the increasing tempo of anti-Semitic riots in late medieval Europe, combined with the witchcraft trials happening at the same time, certainly will give a person some pause. At the same time, there's a lot of specific problems with this narrative. Some are pedagogical, some are methodological, and some are just hidden in the details. As is traditional, I'm going to spend the rest of today's episode expounding on those issues before getting to the more nitty-gritty daily life stuff in the next few episodes. Let's start where all discussion of European Christian doctrine really should start, Augustine. The narrative I just provided ignores in many ways Augustine's personal context and the hows and whys of his doctrine's adaptation. To heavily oversummarize, Augustine was writing in the context of a deep theological debate within Christianity. Many Christians at the time emphasized how Christianity was different from Judaism and rejected the use of even basic Jewish texts in Christianity, like the entire Old Testament. Other writers of this time said that anyone, including Jews, were capable of living a good life and entering heaven. This would call into question the need for baptism and joining the church and becoming a Christian at all. These debates heavily influenced how thinkers of the time felt Jews should be treated. As befit a former student of Greek philosophy, Augustine argued for what he saw as a moderate middle path between these arguments. In alliance with his contemporary, St. Jerome, he argued that the Old Testament was originally a Jewish text, but that it still belonged in Christian canon, and as such, the Hebrew originals should be consulted and should be sought in doing translations. On the other hand, Augustine also argued that baptism as a Christian was necessary as a precondition for entering heaven, and so the Jews were all definitely going to hell, a fate which Augustine blamed on their deicide. Within this wider context, Augustine argued for the treatment of Jews to follow a similarly moderate course, at least in his view. Part of the value of the Jewish people as witnesses was their preservation of the original Hebrew text of the Old Testament, which, according to Augustine, contained a variety of prophecies that foretold the coming of Jesus. 
Needless to say, Jews disagreed about the prophecy stuff, but weren't about to look a gift horse in the mouth. Similarly, Jews were definitely going to hell, but look, the Old Testament is pretty clear that God likes these guys, so let's not get carried away. That last part was Augustine, not the Jews. To put this yet another way, Augustine's arguments were produced by the concerns of his time and place. They were picked up, somewhat out of context, by subsequent generations of theologians and politicians for their own ends. It's certain that Gregory the Great, an important theologian in his own right, was aware of the wider context of Augustine's arguments and was impressed by him as a thinker and, you know, actually, like, seriously considered and understood the theological implications of Augustine's work. We can certainly take Gregory's adoption of the witness doctrine just on this level if we want to. It should be said that at the same time, Gregory was the leader of the civil administration of the Roman holdings in northern Italy, and it was vitally important for him to keep open the trade routes between Rome and Sicily, where papal land holdings were producing the grain that kept the city of Rome from starving, leading a persecution of a community that contained some of the region's major remaining shipping interests was probably never in the cards. Similar discussions can be had about the way royal and liturgical goals evolved in northern Europe and Spain that made the use of Augustine convenient as regards the Jews. That said, I don't want to detract from the importance of Augustine's voice in this issue. He is probably the single most important theologian in Western Christianity, and his influence continues to this day. But it's possible to overemphasize him in really weird ways. When you talk about these long narratives, it's easy to end up distorting time and lose track of the proper sequence of events. In our modern period of literary criticism, some commentators have become embroiled in arguments about whether or not Augustine was anti-Semitic, as if that kind of binary term has any value in a historical discussion. For the record, if you were to go to work tomorrow and tell people that Jews were all personally guilty of killing Jesus and were all going to hell as a result unless Jesus comes soon to convert them, look, you're going to get fired and good riddance, you anti-Semite. The witness doctrine is definitely anti-Semitic in a modern context, but none of that really matters historically. Yes, Augustine perpetuated some talking points about Jews being deicides, but focusing on that really obscures the role his rhetoric played on the ground when most other Christian leaders, including Augustine's own teacher, were advocating burning synagogues and other acts of mob violence. Augustine was a unique and independent thinker, and will be coming up again in our story. He was also writing at a time when beating a slave to death was only considered a social faux pas because it was seen as a waste of money and evidence of a bad temper. He was also writing a thousand years before the Spanish Inquisition, so let's just try and keep him in context. To return to the topic at hand, the idea of an Augustinian golden age for Jews is, it is so overstated that I really don't know whether anyone could be serious about it. Intentionality aside, the first big issue is the most obvious one. Even from the narrative I've presented, there were hints. The biggest and most prosperous Jewish communities of the early Middle Ages lived in the Islamic world, where the Quran's doctrine of protecting people of the book tended to make them more generally friendly than Europe's Augustinian Golden Age. That said, the economy was also just better in the Islamic world during this period, where a lot of the Roman administration had been preserved, so it's possible that this was actually more about commercial importance than persecution. I haven't done enough research to tell you the difference. I honestly think that it's probably about the persecution, but the economy was probably important too. The other big necessary criticism of the Augustinian Golden Age gets back to the issue of sources. The argument for the idea of an Augustinian Golden Age goes something like this. 
we have almost no evidence of persecution of Jews in Western Europe during this period. We have plenty of evidence of persecution in the Eastern Roman Empire during this period, and the communities in Western Europe seem to have been growing. Therefore, everything must have been awesome. High fives all around. If I may get philosophical, this is a classic argument from silence. As I said at the start of the episode, we have barely any sources of any kind from this period. As for the growth of the communities, in later periods where we do have records that there were definitely persecutions, the communities were still able to remain prosperous and grow. Jewish records from this period shed a little bit more light. There may have actually been one or two anti-Semitic riots in France or Germany, uh, and just not helping things, the borders were a little bit iffy in this period. More tellingly, we have a lot of discussion amongst the rabbis about how to deal with people called mamzers, a word that in modern Yiddish just sort of indicates a bad person, but at the time it indicated that a person was an informant to the authorities on their fellow Jews. Because the mamzers were threatening the life and safety of their community, the punishments could be extremely harsh and ranged from ostracism to assassination. In other words, snitches get stitches and wind up in ditches. This is particularly noteworthy because, unlike their Christian counterparts in this period, rabbinic penances were usually more of the moral and spiritual variety than physical. Suffice it to say that compared to the other punishments called for in rabbinic doctrines, the punishments for mumsers were fairly extreme and would probably only make sense if there was a high level of conflict between the Jewish community and the rest of society, at least a higher level of conflict than the rest of our records indicates. Does this mean that the Augustinian Golden Age is entirely fictional? Well, no. Jewish communities emerged from this period with a whole battery of legal protections that stand in stark contrast to the semi-official persecution that was going on just before all the Roman records went dark. And as usual, I tend to think these written laws serve to codify much older oral legal traditions from the period before literacy became an important legal tool. So probably these protections were established pretty early in this period. I do think the growth and prosperity of the communities has some importance, and there is some value in the argument from silence here, because the highly literate Jewish communities probably would have preserved a record of organized oppression or large-scale violence. We really can't know with the current evidence what things were actually like, but I think we can safely assume that there was violent conflict between the Jewish community and the rest of society, while also saying that it was probably at a lower level than that which would follow. The nature of this violence is something I'm going to delve into deeper in the next episodes. Moving beyond Augustine, there is a much broader and linked set of problems with this kind of general narrative that I described. I think the best way to start explaining this is to talk about something that I call aggregation bias in my day job. Let me explain. In statistics, aggregation bias is the tendency of averages to hide important trends. For example, and again, not trying to be political here, but if you look at the average income of people in the United States, it will look like it has been going up for decades. But most of this growth in income has happened due to a fairly small group of people earning a fairly huge amount of money, rather than the U.S. population as a whole being particularly prosperous. This is why economists prefer to use other measures of wealth, like the median income, but that's a different show. There is also the issue of reporting bias. This would be like if we only collected income information from people who earned more than $30,000 every year. That would tend to make it look like this country was richer than it was. While it is genuinely likely that the pace of anti-Semitic events increased generally over the course of the Middle Ages, the availability and density of sources in general was also increasing, which may overemphasize the effect. 
In terms of the history of Jews in the Middle Ages, both these factors are at play in any overarching narrative. Since most of our sources are legal records or official royal correspondences, we tend to only learn about things when things go bad. This will tend to distort our image of the past in a negative light. Furthermore, historians trying to study the nature of these violent events will tend to focus on bigger events with more documentation and more to talk about, and then they will try to generalize these events out to other situations for which they have more limited evidence. This will tend to make it look like exceptionally bad events are somehow normative, and aggregate the uniqueness of other situations under the banner of exceptional events. I've been trying to come up with a good metaphor for this. Here's the best I got. It would sort of be like trying to understand the history of lynching in the United States by focusing only on the 1891 riot in New Orleans that left 11 Italian Americans dead. It was the largest lynching in American history, but in many ways it was extremely atypical, both in terms of the reasons and the people involved, etc. In the composition of this grand narrative of Jews in the European Middle Ages, however, this combination of distortion bias and aggregation bias was probably seen as acceptable because of the goals of the researchers. The point of these first few decades of study was not necessarily to tell the story of how Jews in the Middle Ages actually lived their lives. The goal was to explain how their descendants ended up in Auschwitz. A narrative of a tranquil early Middle Ages with an original sin of intellectual anti-Semitism that grew and expanded as European society changed until it came to be a fatal flaw within the European character itself, it works well with this distorted data. It has even suited the needs of the Jewish community, where, at least in my personal experience, the narrative cycle of escape, prosperity, jealousy, persecution, and escape has taken on a quasi-religious significance, which can be troubling. It is also all tautology. We find in these narratives explanations for things that happened based on what happened. There is some truth to these narratives, but we tend to lose the agency of the people involved. Did people make a decision because of what was going on in their daily life? Yeah, probably. They probably didn't know that they were two years away from a bad pogrom or whatever. Everybody just made decisions based on their own specific needs, their own specific worldview, and what would be useful to them. Looking at how these decisions were made and what their results were is going to be the subject of the next episode, but there is one final aspect of my critique of the structuralist narrative of medieval Jews before we close for the day, and that gets us back to the very start of this episode, and then one of the most basic failings of the structuralists. The examination of Jewish history in the post-war period was the first crack in the normative monolith of structuralism, but as we have seen, it was still based on the assumptions of a normative case, the long durée, etc. But as we know, in the 1960s, all these women started going to college and asking embarrassing questions, by the 1970s, some of them had PhDs in history. Once feminist critiques of structuralism started, the entire facade of a monolithic normative European everyman rapidly disintegrated, and by the 1990s, when Dr. Nirenberg was writing, the special place of Jewish studies in European social history was being re-examined. Now, the goal here is not to say that Jewish history is not uniquely important to the social history of Europe. As the largest and arguably the oldest surviving minority group in Europe, Jewish history tells us a lot about European society. It's just that they were not the only minority group in European society. Or, should I say, they were not the only non-normative group? European society treated all sorts of people as outsiders within the feudal social order. Lepers, Muslims, indigenous ethnic groups, the Romani, and most terrifying of all, women, were all in some way outside of the normative image of European society. And yet, this notoriously xenophobic and violent society somehow made spaces for all these groups, just as they did for the Jews. 
these spaces were in no way up to modern standards, and in many ways each are their own unique story. But by examining them together, we can actually learn a whole lot about the processes by which medieval European society worked. Excitingly for us, this examination can help us get as close as we have yet been to understanding what these wider social processes might mean for an individual in the Middle Ages. That's going to be it for today. I feel a little weird giving my usual episode summary because all of what I just said seems so summarized already, but I know it helps a lot of you out, so let me give it a try. Over the course of the next few episodes, we're going to be looking at how non-normative populations fit into medieval European society. Historiography on this subject is relatively new, because structuralist historians tended to want to lump every non-noble person in Europe into a normative mass. That facade started to crack after World War II, when Jewish history became an important part of the wider cultural effort to come to terms with the Holocaust. The grand narrative that resulted contains many of the failings of structuralism, but is broadly true. This narrative says that the late Roman Empire was pretty bad for Jews, but St. Augustine articulated the doctrine of the witness people that basically said that Jewish communities should be allowed to survive in Christian countries. In the early Middle Ages, this doctrine was mostly followed, but things got worse over the course of the High Middle Ages. They eventually made their way back to France and England, but the largest Jewish communities, as Europe entered the modern age, were in Muslim-controlled areas of the Mediterranean Basin and in Eastern Europe. These communities were then wiped out in the 19th and 20th centuries. This narrative glosses over a lot of the very important details of the story, and there may be some very critical data problems in the narrative. Most importantly for us, the narrative ignores the presence of other non-normative groups in the European Middle Ages, like lepers, women, and the Welsh. Over the next two episodes, we will be examining how European society made space for these different groups. Now, a little peek behind the curtain. I'm honestly not sure which of the other two episodes I want to do first. This episode naturally leads into an episode on the other non-normative groups of Europe that I have, like, 70% written, except that episode leaves out women. And I sort of feel like I want to talk about women first, because they're like 50% of the population. But also, I haven't even started my reading on women yet, so I don't know if I can do that episode in a timely fashion. I mean, women are like a kind of bee, right? It's probably not that hard. But still, I must do my due diligence. So I'm probably going to stick to doing the mostly written episode first, and then finishing up with women. In some ways, I'm not happy with this, but in other ways, it's probably fine. In any case, there is plenty of excitement ahead, so be sure to tune in next time for Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 